Please, you may be seated. Well, if you had uh, the privilege of being here last week, we heard a wonderful sermon from Joel Fitzpatrick on Psalm 4. And some of the themes that he talked about last week that he presented so well for us are going to come up in the sermon again. Uh, namely, the uh, themes of experiencing worry and anxiety in our lives. And I made the foolish mistake of trying to research one or two good examples on how modern technology affects our stress levels and our anxiety level, and it was like a deluge of data. And constantly, the, the constant theme is that when we have an unhealthy relationship with technology, it really leads to distraction, and that increase in distraction of our attention and our focus really leaves us with a sense of poor self-esteem, insecurity, anxiety, worries, and even leads to mental health issues. Uh, that's one of the major themes in this passage. Uh, and Christians aren't exempt for that. You know, I think especially, that's especially important for us as believers because we face a constant barrage of things that are trying to distract us from the Lord. Uh, the enemy is constantly seeking to drag us away from the love of Christ. The world is constantly tempting us with all these false versions of things that will bring us satisfaction. And our own hearts are battling against us constantly telling us that there's another way to approach God, around Jesus, a way to get around Jesus. Uh, another major theme in this passage is that as people who are living in a relationship with God, we come before him as disciples with all different types of um, strengths, with challenges, with um, fears and insecurities, with natural bents that shape us. And those things affect our relationship with God. It's just the reality of living in relationship this side of heaven. And that's true whether it's um, in every relationship that we have, whether it's friendships, relationships with our family. Um, Janie and I had a really funny exchange in the kitchen. Apparently everything happens in the kitchen in our house. Had an exchange in the kitchen this week where she came home from work and she really had had a frustrating day. And she was sharing that with me. And she was saying, yeah, it just seems like you can do this so easily, and this is so hard for me when I deal with people. It just really frustrates me. And I am a painful optimist, and so I was trying to encourage her and say, yeah, but you know what? You're really good at this. I'm really good at this, so that makes us a great team. And without even thinking about it twice, she looked up at me, and she's like, yeah, like you're really nice, but I'm smart. I don't know which I find funnier, the fact that she said it or that I actually agree with it. <laughs> All that to say that when we read this passage, oftentimes uh, scholars and pastors will say, here's this analogy, Martha does it all wrong, Mary does it all right, you should be like Mary. I don't think that's the point of this passage at all. Um, in a very real way, what we're going to see is that Martha was legitimately and actively laboring for Jesus' sake when he arrived in her home. And likewise, Mary was actively seeking to be in Jesus' presence when he was with her. Uh, the real trouble starts in our hearts, like always, uh, when we become distracted and we get caught up in the busyness of our lives, the things that we think we need to do to be right with God. And what that really creates is a sense of anxiety that riddles every area of our lives. We become tyrannized by the urgent, you know, the necessity of the urgent things in life. We get overwhelmed, discouraged, we begin to forget what God's really like, and we're dragged away by the tide before we even realize it. Ironically, this passage shows us that this happens 
even and sometimes especially when we're doing, quote, unquote, the right things. And we're going to see that, that Mary was serving the Lord while not being present with him. So the main idea of this passage is going to help us understand that Jesus, our relationship with Jesus is constantly working against that reality, that pressure that we experience. I think the main idea of this passage is that it shows us that discipleship always starts with a relationship with Jesus. And that relationship is both countercultural and it's counterintuitive. So we're just going to take a few minutes and consider what both of those mean, how discipleship is countercultural and how it's counterintuitive to what we think it should be. Uh, first, how it's countercultural. Now, uh, just a little calibration of the story can be helpful for us. Uh, this point in Luke's narrative is covering Jesus as he journeys to Jerusalem, where eventually he's going to be crucified. And uh, as you notice, it takes place at the house of Martha and Mary. Now, what we know about these two women is that these are two women that Jesus loved very, very much. These are two women that loved Jesus dearly. They were faithful disciples in many respects. Uh, what we also know from the three times that we hear about Martha and Mary in the New Testament is that uh, Martha was likely the older sister, and we see that in her taking on the responsibility of hosting Jesus and taking care of all the household needs. And so for her, there would be an expectation that she would show Jesus hospitality and host him when he arrived. The irony of that is when an event begins that Martha really should be celebrating wholeheartedly, it actually marks the beginning of her internal conflict when Jesus arrives. On one level, Martha's desire was to be a good host and to serve Jesus. Now, it's important to remember that in all likelihood, Jesus wasn't rolling around by himself. He at least had the majority of the disciples with him. So we're talking about a legit dinner party that she was going to have to put on. Um, on another level, though, what this really shows us is that Martha's conflict was centered in her being consumed with a desire to be a good host and actually really the need to perform this task well. She felt driven to do that at all costs. Now, it's really important for me to say right now that hosting and hospitality is not a bad thing and serving is not a bad thing. It's not only a good thing. When we read Scripture, what we see is that hospitality is a basic Christian virtue and God actually cultivates that in all of our lives in different ways. But what we, and we see that principle too at the kingdom, in the kingdom of God. If you think about the way that Jesus speaks about the kingdom of heaven, the way that the um, story of redemption unfolds throughout scripture, the principle that God welcomes us into his family and then relieves us of all our sinfulness and frees us to do the same for others is at the very heart of the gospel. It's a very basic and um, fundamental thing that we do in a way that we live as Christians. But it is interesting that when Jesus arrives at the house, Martha is suddenly consumed with serving as opposed to being with him. An experience that should have brought her a sense of peace and joy has suddenly become her biggest struggle in life. Now, if you notice, the text describes her experience in three different ways. First, it says that she was distracted with much serving. Second, it says that she was anxious. And third, it says that she was troubled by many things. Now, it's easy for you and I to focus on the externals, and that would be fair to some extent, because there really was a long list of legitimate things that Mary needed to accomplish when Jesus arrived at her house. It's also true that her sister was, in fact, not helping her in the kitchen. 
If you're here and you're an older sibling, you may be identifying with Martha right now. Having a younger sibling, it doesn't help you out. Full disclosure, though, I'm a younger sibling, so I'm in Team Mary. That's, I'm not complaining at all. But the reality is, is that Martha's struggle begins and takes place in her heart. What she's battling really is mixed motives. Uh, if you're familiar with John chapter 11, one thing that's clear in that passage is that Martha is a woman who loved Jesus very much. In chapter 11 of John's gospel, uh, Martha makes this incredible profession of her faith in Jesus, even in the midst of experiencing overwhelming heartbreak at the loss of her brother. Her brother had just died. But Martha is also being driven in this experience. She's also being driven by something else. What Martha's struggle consisted of was an external battlefront and then an internal battlefront. Externally, Martha knew, both by cultural standards and as a principle of practicing discipleship, that serving was an important aspect of how she carried out her faith. But she was also using those external markers that she found in social uh, standards and societal norms to gauge whether she was being successful in her task. So in her context, that meant that she was living by the expectations that were set in first century Jewish culture. So what does that mean? In first century Jewish culture, social boundaries were clearly defined and expectations were clearly set for everybody to live by. And this was especially true when it came to the roles of the sexes. So what that meant for a woman in first century Jewish culture was that a woman's primary role was to be a caretaker and a host, to take care of the children and to host people that came into the home. What it also meant was that women did not engage in the affairs that men engaged in. It meant that the things that the men did in the house, the women wouldn't, partici uh, wouldn't participate in. There was only a few instances in social life where those boundaries would be crossed, and typically it'd be around child-rearing and family events. But when the men were doing men things in the living room, the women had their role, and that was to serve. See, Martha sees this as the primary way that she can honor Jesus, right? So she sets out by trying to fulfill those tasks. But it also reflects her conflicted desire for approval through meeting cultural standards that she valued. She did this uh, as opposed to receiving the approval of Jesus simply by being in his presence. This kind of comes out in Martha's question in the exchange. The question is actually rhetorical when she says, don't you see that my sister isn't helping her? It's a rhetorical question. She expects Jesus to agree with her. And so really what she's saying is, I want you to tell her where she belongs. That brings us to the scandal of Mary's behavior. If all that doesn't seem offensive enough, if you're hearing you're a woman, that's not offensive. That brings us to the real scandal. The scandal is really in how Mary behaves. You see, when it says that she was sitting at the feet of Jesus, that is an activity that only a disciple and a student of a rabbi would engage in. And the act of discipleship was only available for men in that culture. And so a woman should never be sitting at the feet of a rabbi or a teacher. If she was, she was indicating that she was his disciple. So that's funny because Mary is not only assuming that she is called to fulfill the role of a disciple, but she's preferring the role of a disciple over any other role that she has in her life. 
Simply put, Mary is crossing every social boundary that she can in one fell swoop by spending time with Jesus. What fascinates me the most about that is that uh, if you and I, you know, uh, Pastor Scott Sauls nails this point. If you and I look at Mary and her behavior from our vantage point, we could easily describe her as a theological conservative, right? Because she is committed to being in the presence of the living word of truth. That is her highest priority. So we could depict her as a theological conservative. The irony in that is that according to the cultural expectations that she lived in at that time, she could easily be described as a cultural progressive because she's doing things that men just ought not to do. Martha is distracted with the cultural standards that predict how she should behave and what she should do. And she misses what she needs most. That's being in the presence of Jesus. Now again, just to double back, there's nothing wrong with caring for others or being a gracious host. If anyone's been in our home, they know that Janie is the real MVP in the White family. Uh, There's been many times when people have shared with us that they've experienced uh, warm and gracious hospitality as a result of uh, Janie serving them and experience the love of Jesus through those simple acts of service. And we're all called to do that, all of us, men, women, young, old, family, singles, we're all called to engage in that. Uh, Another great example of this is if you haven't been with us since our inception, for many, many months at the beginning of uh, our church plant as a family, we would meet in Rob and Nisa's living room for months and months on end. And there would be anywhere from 20 to 35 of us sitting in Rob and Nisa's living room, worshiping together, fellowshipping together, studying God's word together, and growing spiritually together as a church family. And that happened in part because they were constantly engaging and serving their church family. That being said, though, first and foremost, what this passage tells you and I is that we are ultimately and always defined by our relationship with Jesus. So in the context of this story, that means for women that they are first defined as beloved daughters before they're anything else, that they're the object of all the affections of their heavenly father. It also means that above every other role that they fulfill in their life, they're called to be disciples, and they're called to prioritize being with Jesus and following Jesus before they're a wife, before they're a daughter, before they're a mother, before they're a professional, any other role. And that applies for all of us, before we're husbands, before we're brothers, before we're employees. All of these roles are superseded by our role as a disciple. And you know, that fits really well with the, the, bottle, the model of biblical discipleship, especially in the New Testament. If you look, if you've read the book of Acts at all, you see all these wonderful examples. Um, we meet somebody named Anna, who's a prophetess. She prophesies to God's people. That would be breaking social boundaries. Uh, We meet a couple named Priscilla and her husband Aquila, who actually appear in the New Testament, I think, six times, Uh, most famously for instructing a young, zealous preacher named Apollos, and they were teaching him proper theology. Here's what I love about this story is that Priscilla, I think, in four of those instances is named first, which would indicate that she was the prominent personality in that marriage. So in that ministry team, she was the powerhouse. Uh, We meet a woman named Lydia who opens up a church in her own home. 
And I don't know if that's prophetic now that we have our own Lydia or what, but she is uh, one of the founding members of the church at Philippi. And in my fav- one of my favorite characters, we meet a woman named Phoebe, who Paul actually describes as a deacon and somebody to be supported and revered because of her work and sacrifice for the gospel's sake. You know, all these examples, and including the example of you and I in our lives, really fit beautifully with the heart of the gospel message. The fact that the love of God shatters every single boundary to make salvation possible to all of us. Whether you're a woman, whether you're a man, whether you're a child, whether you are an insider, whether you lived your life on the margins of society, God's love breaks through all of that to make salvation a gift that he gives to us. If that external battlefront that Martha was dealing wasn't enough, she also had a battlefront that she was dealing with internally in her heart. You know, Wayne gave me this wonderful piece of uh, research um, by a colleague and a friend of his named Laura Andrews, who's a Christian counselor for CCF. And she also did this wonderful workshop for a, a counseling conference in which she creates and presents a biblical counseling model based on this passage for certain types of people, people that identify with Martha's behavior and her heart attitudes. And among some of the other things that she does in her workshop is uh, that she identifies some of the internal motivations for those of us who struggle with engaging tasks that always seem to need to be done. Some of her observations are really helpful for us in our consideration. Uh, Andrew says that those of us who relate to Martha can find it hard to not over-identify with our usefulness. She says, we often draw our sense of self-worth from our ability to be helpful. This leads to a tendency to over-depend upon our ability to be effective and that we often struggle with letting things go. I don't relate to that at all, by the way. It's not an issue for me. She says that this is frequently due to the belief that the things that really matter are always resting on our shoulders. Andrews points out that underneath all of this, what people are really battling is a sense of worthlessness and worry because they're convinced that if they're not being useful, their identity is under attack and they must defend it by justifying themselves and blaming others. Is anybody relating yet? (laughs) My favorite part of Andrew's workshop is she goes on to say that behind all of these conflicts in our heart, what lies is conflicted desires that so many of us have in our daily lives. She says that we have a struggle to be vulnerable and dependent upon the Lord for our deepest needs and a sense of worth. And so instead, what we frequently do is we identify threats that we can manage and tasks that we can complete. And we use that to answer the nagging questions of self-worth as opposed to just going to Jesus in the first place. Because if I can manage well, I don't need to be that vulnerable with Jesus. This often results for us in Christians, whether it's in community life or daily life, this results in you and I putting our hands in the work that God's called us to when our hearts are a million miles away from it. One of the ways that I've learned to notice in my life to tell the difference is if I serve and I experience joy, a sense of peace, a sense of love, uh, a desire to nurture and care for others, I'm doing it based on my relationship with Jesus. Jesus. 
If I'm doing it for other motives, what I find is I become disillusioned, tired, burned out. I become bitter, and I become more and more angry at you for being you. One of the things that I've learned over the years is that one of the most common places that we will hide out as Christians is in the busyness of serving right in the midst of God's people. Because we can hide out from God and we can hide out from others and we don't have to deal with what's going on in our heart if we just stay busy enough. And we live in a world that affirms that false sense all the time. Finally, Andrews points out that Jesus' call to us is a call to a relationship with him first and foremost. And she says he does this because it forces us to deal with the most difficult questions in life, the nagging questions of whether God really loves us, whether he really cares about our struggles, and questions about self-worth and identity, questions that force us to wonder, is God really sufficient? Is he really enough for me? Is the identity that he gives me enough? You see, Jesus exposes our drive to do the things, uh, to do things on our own so that we are able to see that his love is the primary thing that we need. And that brings us to the second aspect, that discipleship is always counterintuitive to the bent of our hearts. I think oftentimes... Uh, when we read this account, it's not hard for us to hear a mild sense of disappointment and disdain and mild disgust on Jesus' part when he responds to Martha. I mean, a lot of times when we struggle, we read those words that he says to Martha, and what we hear is, Martha, Martha, you are worried about so many things. You are a mess, girl. Would you get it together? We're trying to do things here. And oftentimes, when we read the words of Scripture and we hear God speaking to us, that's what you and I hear. And so we double down on our efforts to stay busy. But the tone of Jesus' response is actually one of mercy and compassion. When we read this, we should actually hear something along the lines of, Martha, Martha, you are worried about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. You see, the beauty of how Jesus operates in his relationship with us is that he never answers our struggles with judgment or condemnation. He always confronts our struggles with his love for us. Jesus responds to us in mercy and gentleness and kindness, giving us the words of life that our soul needs. The most counterintuitive part of this passage comes in verse 42, I think. And it's when Jesus makes the statement that only one thing is necessary. Now, it's important to note, he doesn't say only one thing is good. He doesn't say what Martha was doing physically was bad, but he says only one thing is necessary. You see, we live in a world that tells us if we serve well, then we'll be valuable to other people. That if you do more, you actually will be more. But Jesus says that our highest call as a disciple is actually to be loved by him first. You see, Jesus is demolishing the belief that you and I grapple with in our own ways. That we often don't realize that we want to work our way into a sense of self-worth. 
You see that Martha, she's in the presence of the man who walks on water, turns water into wine, literally has the power over life and death. And what does she do? She asks him to send somebody else to help her. (laughs) I mean, it's almost like you could just picture being like, you know what, Jesus, I am working really hard to help you here, but you're not making it easy. Would you send some help? It reminds us that at times you and I still want to work our way into his love. Because if we feel like we can work our way into God's approval, we won't have to worry about how much he really loves us. You know, this contradicts something that Jesus says in the previous parable right before this story. He gives what's commonly referred to as the two greatest commandments. And in that, he tells this young lawyer who approaches him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He gives him a story, the story of the Good Samaritan. And if you're unfamiliar with the story, the overarching theme is that as sinful human beings, we can never justify ourselves before God. And so what we need is God to serve us first so we can be justified based on his service to us. And when the lawyer asks Jesus that question, he says, what I've done all these things, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He tells him the story of the Samaritan. But what he does is he tells him the two greatest commandments. And the two greatest commandments really are a summary of the entire law of the Old Testament in two statements. First, that we are to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is that we're to love our neighbor. You see, Jesus gives him that answer because the two greatest commandments highlight that loving God and loving others is always and first a matter of our heart. Jesus uses the parable to show that young lawyer what his defective heart looked like. And likewise, when you and I get caught up in the busyness of justifying ourselves, we're really cutting ourselves off from the love of God that we need the most. And so, the sequence of the two commandments really is the key to Jesus' response. You see, our love for others is always a result of God loving us first. Our service to others is always preceded by God serving us first. In what I think is one of the greatest gospel summary statements in the New Testament, the Apostle John uh, makes this beautiful summary statement about how God loves us. In 1 John 4, 9 through 11, he says, And this is the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So our service is always a grateful response to how he serves us and loves us. Jesus says this himself point blank in the Gospel of Mark. He makes this point blank statement. He says the Son of Man, he's speaking about himself, came not to be served but to serve And to give his life as a ransom for many. So thinking about that, when we live in response to that, when we prioritize resting in our relationship with the Lord above every other activity that we do, what we find is we are filled with the love of Christ. And that's a love that overflows out of us. We realize that long before we do anything for Jesus, he is perfectly pleased with us. That's hard to believe. 
but it's true. We're also filled with the desire to serve out of the abundant overflow of His love for us. And that's strictly as an expression of our gratitude. Not because we need to earn anything, because we've, always been, we've already been given the greatest gift in salvation. Furthermore, our service to God is only possible through our dependence upon Him. We see this in John 15, when Jesus speaks of Himself as the vine, and He depicts God as the vine dresser, the farmer, and He describes disciples as the branches. In verse 5, He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in Me, and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from Me, you can do nothing. You see, the counterintuitive element of all this is that discipleship always begins with our sustenance in Christ, not our service for Christ. It also determines the difference between busyness in our lives and fruitfulness in our lives. Because busyness is always the result of us striving and trying to do things by our own power outside of God. But fruitfulness always begins with us resting in Him and depending on Jesus and serving from the strength that He provides us. You see, in prioritizing receiving from Jesus first and resting in His presence before we ever set out to serve Him, we learn to safely depend on Him knowing that He is infinitely more capable of meeting our needs and the needs of others for us. We also realize through all these experiences of depending on Him that our weak faith and our struggles never deter God's love for us. We begin to live with a firm belief that our difficulties are actually surrounded by the deeper reality of God's goodness for us. You know, in the gospel reading that Rob gave for us today, what's the first thing that Jesus says? He says, come to me, long before he ever says, go and do for me. You see, when you and I prioritize being at the feet of Jesus before anything else, we are constantly reminded that he loves us radically. And he constantly reminds us that he already loves us as much as he loves Jesus He constantly reminds us that He is completely and totally delighted in you. So much so that He took on human flesh to remove every obstacle that stands between you and Him. My favorite phrase in this passage comes in verse 42 when Jesus says, It will not be taken from her. You see, when Jesus says that to Martha and in the presence of Mary, and when he says it to you and I, he's making a definitive statement about his love for us. Jesus will not allow anything to come between his love and us. Jesus looks at you and I in the midst of all of our busyness, in the midst of all of our distraction in the midst of all of our hang-ups and our fears and our baggage and our junk, he takes all the busy to-do lists that we create that rule our hearts and cloud up our heads and he crumples them up and he throws them over his shoulder. 
And he reminds us that being with him is the only thing that we truly need. And that being in his presence is actually what pleases him the most. And that's the irony, is all the things that we do to try and know that he is pleased with us, we can know simply by being with him in an active relationship. You see, what God really, really wants for you is to be so enamored with how much he loves you and so filled with gratitude for how he already has served you and how he continually serves you that you just cannot wait to go and do it for other people so they could experience the love of Jesus through the life of a disciple. And I think that's a commandment that we can keep. Amen? Amen. Let's praise God and glorify him.